I'm Joanna Rowell, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. My guest today is Chris Impey, astronomer from the University of Arizona and author of a number of popular science books. His most recent book, Dreams of Other Worlds, was written in collaboration with English professor Holly Henry. This book explores how our concept of distant worlds have been shaped by unmanned space exploration missions over the past 40 years. By looking at 11 individual NASA missions, including the Mars rovers, Voyager, and the Hubble telescope, Impey and Henry discuss topics ranging from life on Mars to the origins of our universe. The book begins in our solar system with Mars. We have a history of being fascinated by Mars. Think of Orson Welles' radio program, The War of the Worlds, which instigated a panic over a Martian invasion. And so I started out the interview by asking Dr. Impey why we find this planet so compelling. Yeah, Mars has this amazing history because, um, you know, for a good part of a century, it was the domain of, uh, you know, lurid science fiction fantasy, Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, you know, bizarre imaginings of life forms and civilizations and of classic science fiction of the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and that was in exacerbated or, or fueled, if you like, by things like um, the H.G. Wells books from early in the century and then Orson Welles' famous radio broadcast where you know people got fearful of a Mars invasion because they really thought it could happen. So that was the context for the first part of the 20th century. And then when Viking got there and showed that it was an arid desert, apparently an arid desert, it kind of dashed people's hopes. So Mars has been subject to this, you know, huge fluctuation in in our thinking about it and how likely it is to host life. And I guess at this point, the pendulum has swung back again because now we know that Mars has had water on its surface in the past and, in fact, episodically, can have water on it right now, and in fact, there's probably subsurface aquifers, tens of meters down, which could host microbial life. So Mars is, uh, you know, a lot more interesting than it seemed to be when Viking got there, and the rovers and landers have just been sort of, you know, getting into detail on how habitable Mars might actually be. One particularly fascinating theory about Mars that captured the public's imagination was this idea that an ancient civilization on Mars disappeared due to a water shortage. In an attempt to survive, it was thought, the Martians built enormous canals to funnel water from the poles to their cities. I asked Dr. Impey to tell us about these so-called canals. Sure. The Canals on Mars, it was an interesting historical episode because <clears throat> Percival Lowell had retired as a wealthy Boston merchant, and he was a self-taught uh, scientist, but he you know, he was quite smart and had read a lot, and his, he dedicated himself to building a superb telescope uh, just a few you know, hundred miles north of me in Flagstaff, and the western desert a hundred years ago it was extremely dark and a beautiful site for astronomy. And at the time he made his Mars observations, Mars was making one of its closest approaches to the Earth for almost a century. And he had one of the biggest telescopes on one of the best sites. So what he saw on Mars, you know, could really not be rivaled by anyone else. And when he, through his eyepiece, imagined 
that the sinuous markings on Mars that we now know just to be natural geological features were more linear. <laughs> you know, he imagined them to be more linear than they were. And he just conjured up this fantasy of of canals built by a dying Martian civilization that was trying to bring water. He didn't realize the cap, polar caps were mostly carbon dioxide and not water ice, trying to bring water down to the equator to survive. And, you know, because no one could really refute him at the time, although scientists were pretty sure it wasn't right. Uh, and because he wrote popular books that were very well written and sold a lot of copies, and then because of this bizarre little aside where um, in a newspaper, I forget which major newspaper, uh, Canali, which was the Italian word for um, not uh, not an artificial feature, but it's just a natural channel, was mistranslated in the American media. And so um, the Italian Schiaparelli, who was also observing these features, his he, he didn't agree with Lowell, but his discovery was uh, reported as confirming Lowell because they mistranslated the Italian word. So all of that conspired to get people absolutely sure, the general public, that Mars was swarming with life, a dying Martian civilization. And so naturally, you know, Ray Bradbury and these great science fiction writers towards the middle of the century, they just grabbed onto it and, and just, you know, wrote these incredible evocative fantasies about what life on Mars might be like. Ancient Martian civilizations aside, there is another possibility for life on Mars, microbes. I asked Dr. Impey to tell us about James Lovelock, who was interested in testing the hypothesis of microbial life on Mars with the idea that by looking at Mars' atmosphere, it might be possible to detect signs of life. So Lovelock had a, um, James Lovelock was a British scientist who was working for the government and in the 1970s and, you know, kind of frustrated by being a civil, scientific civil servant and in a mid, midlife crisis, basically. And he got invited out to the United States to visit, and then he eventually stayed uh, to work with NASA. And it was a time when NASA was starting to, uh, when the Viking was about to happen, and NASA was worrying about how to interpret the data it might get from Martian missions. And Lovelock, just who, who in his professional research had been sniffing the atmosphere to detect pollutants and contaminants. He actually developed some amazing equipment, considering it was 40 years ago, that was able to detect pollutants from, um, you know, power plants in Japan all the way in Europe, tiny concentrations. And when he started thinking about what you would see in a planetary atmosphere, he realized that, well, you can look on the in the ground and on the dirt for life, but the biggest sign of life on the Earth is the air we breathe, the oxygen in it. And so he realized that sniffing the atmosphere was one of the best ways of deciding whether a planet was alive or not. And then he went on from that to develop this very interesting idea that life on a planet is in a symbiotic relationship with, with the, the dirt, the geology of the planet, and the atmosphere of the planet. And it's, it's not that life is just painted on the surface or just exists on the surface independent of anything else. And that interplay between the biology of the biosphere and the atmosphere and the geology, which is now a standard part of the scientific way of thinking of a planet, that was a new idea. And he, he called it Gaia because, you know, which was a reference to a sort of mythical goddess, the Earth goddess from uh, thousands of years ago, um, because he wanted to just bring out this 
profound connection between the life and the planet that it exists on, even if it's just microbial life. Although spirit, opportunity, and now curiosity have yet to discover ancient Martian civilization or evidence of microbial life, the Viking missions were incredibly successful and exceeded anyone's expectations. Yeah, so um, spirit and opportunity, of course, follows from a progression of, of rovers and um, uh, uh, Pathfinder was the first, that's 1995. So, we, so we've been landing uh, rovers on Mars for 50, almost 20 years now. Um, Spirit and Opportunity were extraordinary because th their success stories, I mean, they're well told that they were designed to last three months and uh, one died after about seven years and, and the other is still going. I mean, and they've, their poor principal investigator, Steve Squires, who works at Cornell, and he set aside, you know, a year or so of his life to follow the missions, and he's now still chained to a desk, living living on Mars time, which I'm sure pisses off his family. Uh, but it's his life, you know, it's his it's his life mission. And so um, these little rovers, um, they were identical hardware, and yet had strangely different uh, paths through their lives and their and their journeys on Mars. It's it's. Scientists are not supposed to anthropomorphize or project emotions or personalities onto machines, but it's very hard not to with spirit and opportunity because of, you know, because of what happened to them, the very different paths they took. But they both, of course, exceeded their design goals enormously. You know, the most, two of the most successful things NASA's ever done, and one of them, of course, still functioning even as Curiosity now, which is uh, spirit and opportunity are like go-kart size and. Um, curiosity is like an SUV, so it's it's the next generation of rover. But you know those little rovers did an amazing job, given um, the technology. Of course, was a decade or more old now. Now let's move beyond Mars to the rest of the solar system. Many of you listeners have probably heard about the Goldilocks zone, or the area of our solar system that is just the right distance away from the sun, where water can exist and life as we know it can be sustained. Earth and Mars are both located within the Goldilocks zone. However, Voyager's trips to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn taught us that water, and potentially life, can turn up in unexpected places. So Voyager was, uh, you know, NASA had a, an interesting period because after Apollo, um, the budget was unsustainable to get to the moon, and it was that all the presidents involved in that just winced every time they saw NASA's budget. So NASA's budget peaked historically in 1967, and, and it had risen a factor of five or eight from its inception, and it went down another factor of five or six. So NASA sort of went through a bit of a slump. But in the 1970s, it they retooled into doing robotic probes, which, of course, were cheaper. You know, astronauts are expensive. And so that was a smart move, and it's one that's, of course, paid off with the rovers now on Mars. So they've developed these planetary probes, and, and it was a sort of grand tour. A grand, it was called a grand tour, actually, um, to, to see the outer solar system for the first time, to look up close at the giant planets, which people didn't think might be that interesting, and to look at their moons, which people really just didn't know anything about. They were just dots of light through a telescope. And I think the biggest surprise and, and important thing that we learned about this outer solar system from the Voyagers was that the moons of the giant planets are not just moons. They're not boring, dull, uh, cratered objects like our moon. They're interesting worlds in their own right, and they 
uh, and a number of them have the potential for hosting life, microbial life, and that was a real surprise. So not just uh, Europa, you know, the classic water world and the outer solar system, but there's Titan, which has a, you know, if it has life, it's going to have life that's a completely different biochemical basis than life on Earth because it's ethane, methane, ammonia, and water. Uh, and then Ganymede, Callisto, there's just a lot of moons that almost certainly have liquid oceans buried under a sort of rocky, icy crust. So they don't look very interesting from from the satellite, but the data was good enough to show that there's probably water there. Uh, and Enceladus, of course, a huge surprise, this little moon's Moon and Saturn, small, <clears throat> smaller than Rhode Island, is shooting jets of icy particles out into space, and nobody has any clue that would there would be water inside that little rocky world. So the voyages first gave us a sign, and especially with Europa, of course, that there are places where there could be life in the outer solar system. And so this whole idea of a habitable zone and the Goldilocks region, where you just the right distance from the sun, where water can be liquid on the surface, that's a that's a very limiting and erroneous idea of a habitable zone. That's the big thing we learned. One image that Voyager took on the request of Carl Sagan is incredibly famous and is called the pale blue dot. I asked Dr. Impey to tell us a bit about this iconic image. The pale blue dot was um, a very evocative uh, designation for an image that um, so the Voyager as it got into the outer solar system um, uh, Sagan was on the instrument team of course and the, the spacecraft team and he he asked NASA he pretty much ordered NASA because they pretty much did what he said at that point he was very preeminent um, to point Voyager back to look towards the earth which is you know, at that point, six billion miles away, or six billion kilometers, actually, I don't want to get the wrong units. Um, and from that incredible distance, the Earth was literally a dot. I mean, it was smaller than one pixel on the camera. And, you know, and, and so people, of course, questioned his idea. They thought, well, why do you want to do that? That's silly. You don't learn anything about the planet you live on by taking a picture of it from that far away. But they, they didn't understand how his mind worked, and they didn't understand how brilliant he was. So, of course, what he did was he used that, that image of this little speck, which just happens to contain the hopes and dreams and ambitions of six billion people. He used it to riff this amazing um, little speech, which he turned into a book a few years later, called The Pale Blue Dot, about our cosmic situation. And, you know, he was, I'm not going to disrespect Neil Tyson. <clears throat> who's on the verge of doing Cosmos version 2 30 years later. But Carl Sagan is a very hard act to follow. I think he was a one-off, basically. And he had the he was the only uh, scientist of his generation, and maybe even since, who could, you know, who's, who's absolutely top tier in the science. I mean, he'd written hundreds of research papers. He's the editor of Icarus, the premier planetary science journal. He, you know, he had accomplished everything you could accomplish as a professional scientist, and then he went into education, into media. He appeared on Johnny Carson lots of times. You know, he became a media persona, and he did Cosmos, which is, I think, still almost the most viewed TV series in history. Uh, and he, and then he did these little, you know, and he conjured up these uh, connections between space and us that made it meaningful to the average person because. 
you know, NASA's not always been good at that, and astronomers have not always been good at connecting what they do, which is often very esoteric to the, you know, to our earthly concerns. It seems like we got big problems here on Earth, so why should we care about space? And Fagan was able to do that. He could make it relevant. He could make it meaningful. He could take us outside our little petty political squabbles about shutting down the government or whatever it might be, the budget, and take us to a different realm, one that he thought we were worthy of. He thought we were destined to explore space, to one day live in space. And he's probably right. It might take longer than he thought or hoped. But, you know, the pale blue dot was a almost perfect example of the brilliance of his thinking. Another famous aspect of Voyager is that it carries with it a golden record that contains images and sounds of Earth. Here's Dr. Impey telling us about this cosmic message in a bottle, which has recently traveled beyond the confines of our solar system. So Voyager, um, were, you know, pioneer before it, and then Voyager were our sort of messages in a bottle. They were our our, our bottles tossed out into the void, into the ocean of space, you know, not as a literal attempt to communicate with aliens that might find these artifacts, but, but as a putting our best foot forward, as sort of saying what we're about, of sort of stating our claim to be members of an interstellar, um, you know, situation rather than just our terrestrial situation. So Pioneer had a little plaque attached to its leg, and then Voyager... Um, had a, a record, a disc, and a, literally an old-fashioned phonographic record attached to its leg, which um, a committee with Carl Sagan and Frank Drake and Timothy Ferris, and I can't remember all the people on it, but it was, it was a pretty interesting committee, and it was interdisciplinary, picked out the images, the sounds. There, were, there was a greeting from the President of the United States, who I think was Carter, and a hundred and there were greetings from the UN Secretary General, who was Yusant at the time, and 120 languages of the Earth greetings. There were sounds of the Earth. There were um, musical selections. That's the easiest one to second guess, because, you know, there was a, to be blunt, there was a bunch of middle-aged white men making a musical selection. And it was before rap. It was before a whole bunch of musical genres. So, it was a fairly white bread musical selection. Nothing wrong with it, but, you know. Um, so they were basically his little time capsule sent out into space. And uh, it took a little, a bit of a beating for, you know, because it's easy to just poke fun at it and say, well, you know, you sent an LP out into space, and that's obsolete even on the Earth. So what message is that sending to these aliens about how smart we are? And to be, I, I really appreciated it when that, criticism was made and the team responsible for the record really pushed back hard and they said hey you know as we speak we have no expectation of the longevity of our digital media and indeed it's the case that cds from the 1980s are degrading and dvds are degrading and, we're, and these technologies are pretty much becoming obsolete already and they just made the point that the uh, the record they sent out was an analog technology with instructions of how to decode it on the cover and that it would last physically for 100,000 years. You know, take that CD, take that DVD. So I think that was a legitimate point, that this spacecraft has information coded into it on the record that will indeed survive long enough to potentially reach another star. Now let's move from the outer reaches of our solar system to its very center, 
I asked Dr. Impey to tell us about how our sun causes space weather or solar flares and how these could affect us on Earth. The sun is, of course, the source of all life on Earth. You know, with the sun switched off overnight, we'd, uh, the atmosphere would hold its heat for a little while, and then we'd all just go into the deep freeze and die. So sustaining life is its basic function. But beyond that, it, of course, is a variable object. It has a, a 22-year solar cycle. And in particular, although the light variation of the sun is quite modest, it's less than a tenth of a percent if you just monitor its visual brightness, um, the variation of its intensity, its energy at high, at long wave, uh, sorry, at high frequencies or short wavelengths is quite extreme, so ultraviolet and X-rays, and in particular, the activity associated with sunspots uh, manifested out in the chromosphere in the outer hot halo of the sun is enormous amounts of high energy radiation. So when there's a prominence or a coronal ejection or some episodic activity on the surface, it generates lots of high-energy radiation, lots of high-energy particles, and that, you know, rushes out at some good fraction of the speed of light and impinges on the Earth. Not directly. Luckily, we have a magnetic field, so we're protected by the magnetic field completely. And so these coronal mass ejections, which is one of the most dramatic forms of activity, in history, these things have really caused problems for us. There was one in 1965 that knocked out a good part of the North American power grid. And we essentially just haven't had a huge episode like that in the modern era. And people worry about the resilience of the power grid, and it's not clear how it would handle such an event. So the, the, the high-energy emission from the, the solar wind and the episodic emission from the sun has a profound effect on the Earth. We're protected from the worst effect just by our sort of protective sheath of the magnetosphere. But, um, you know, when the sun gets lively, it's kind of bad news for telecommunications and, and could be really bad news for us if it got very lively. You can't talk about unmanned space exploration without talking about Hubble. This space telescope, which has taught us so much about our universe, had a lot of issues. In fact, it barely got off the ground. Here's Dr. Impey talking about the difficulties that needed to be surmounted before Hubble started sending us the unbelievably beautiful images that we've become familiar with. Well, Hubble is, you know, is, a sort of pre is still the preeminent tool of optical astron and near-infrared astronomers, um, you know, over two decades after it was launched. Um, and it's interesting because it was a, it's a small telescope. It, it had to be small enough to fit into it. It wasn't originally designed to be launched in the shuttle. People thought they would launch it on a rocket and it would have been bigger. It was constrained to be two and a bit meters in diameter because it had to go in the shuttle bay and that actually places it as one of the smaller telescopes. If you put it in a ranked list of the world's largest telescopes, it doesn't crack the top 50. So it's not a big telescope. It does so well as it does because it's above the Earth's atmosphere so it makes essentially perfect images and also because um, be, being above the Earth's atmosphere, it can work at wavelengths where the radiation is, is absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere, ultraviolet and infrared especially. Um, so it was conceived just after the Second War, and I think 1946 was the first written plan for an orbiting telescope. Lyman Spitzer was a, one of the preeminent astrophysicists out of Princeton who was on these panels, and, and he barely lived to see it launch. So that's a sign of how long it takes to get a project from the original conception to the eventual launch. And it's, of course, if its whole path was 
subject to a series of twists and turns of fortune that people sort of forget now because it's just cemented in everyone's mind as this amazing facility that takes these beautiful pictures. But first of all, it took decades to get it off the ground, even though everyone knew there was a good reason to do it back in the 1950s. Then it was originally designed to be launched with a rocket, but after the Apollo program was wound down, the U.S. didn't have a big launch capability, and so it had to move to the shuttle. And then, just before it was due to be launched, the Challenger disaster happened. So it was delayed another two years. So the people involved in the project were just wondering if it would ever go up. And then when it went up, of course, it had the optics problem, the aspheric optics, which was just a basic screw-up. It was a man, you know, not to put it on the engineers who did the final test and, and missed the fact that one of the optical elements was misplaced. And so they basically made a, a beautiful mirror, but perfectly wrong. Um, it was a management decision because to save probably a few tens of millions of dollars on a billion-dollar project by not doing a full-up test of the optical assembly, they just missed the fact that it was spherically aberrated. So that was probably a, that was a management failure, and that's what the panel that investigated what went wrong decided. So it went up, you know, so all this long, protracted history, decades long, and then it goes up and it's taking wonky pictures and it's a public relations disaster for NASA. And, you know, this is not looking very good at this point. Uh, and then they sort of snatch victory from the jaws of defeat by having a servicing mission, which not only fixes Hubble back essentially to its original spec, so fully restores its capability with eyeglasses that perfectly correct the, the bad mirror or the perfectly wrong mirror, but also that mission played into another debate in, in my community over whether we should have robots in space, you know, these the Voyagers, the, the Mars rovers, because they're cheaper and they're not frail and they're, you know, they're, they're a good way to do things, or to have astronauts. You know, why do we need astronauts? They're so expensive. You know, Apollo is so expensive. Well, the, the astronauts who serviced the Hubble that first time and then four other times since, you know, have, did, and they did basically the most difficult things humans have ever done in space. They did extremely complex, multi-day, multi-spacewalk, missions with really difficult technical demands and physical demands on them. And this Hubble servicing mission sort of became emblematic of why having people in space might actually be important and you couldn't do the whole thing with robots. So that, that became a little side uh, debate over with Hubble. But Hubble got fixed, and then because it's in launched by the shuttle and serviced by the shuttle, it can be upgraded. And so Hubble has been rejuvenated every three or four years by a new set of instruments and new solar panels and new batteries and new gyroscopes and so on. And so, you know, even though it's a kind of venerable telescope now, it's still taking state-of-the-art data. What I love about this story is how it shows the question, what is more important, manned or unmanned space exploration? That question doesn't really make sense. As Dr. Impey put it. I think it's a false dichotomy. I think you know, the truth is that robots and astronauts working in harness are, have done the most amazing things. And then more generally, I think the robots and robotic probes are sort of the pathfinders. They're, they're just the, the, you know, they're just the first wave sentinels we send to find out whether someone could survive there. Or, you know, so we will have a set of Mars rovers, and then eventually I'm sure there will be people on Mars. But we'll learn plenty using the robots you know, without risking humans.
So far, we've been talking about some of the most famous space robots, the Mars rovers, Voyager, and Hubble. But there are a few that are less well-known, and one of them is WMAT. So what is WMAT, and what has it taught us? WMAP, uh, yeah, most of the people in the field just call it WMAP, just from its acronym. So it's the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, put of a mouthful. And it's probably one of the um, astronomy or NASA missions that the average member of the public is not so familiar with or is not aware of. And it's one of the, it, it's a niche mission. So in my view, in my way of thinking about it, NASA's always had, and all the space agencies that do this kind of work have They've they've had missions that are like Swiss Army knives that have that are multi billion dollars, which is a lot of money, and have you know six, eight, ten, twelve different instruments, and they can do everything. And so Cassini, Cassini is like that, and Hubble is like that, and um, and then NASA's had a lot of success with missions that are designed more narrowly to answer one, only one, but one big scientific question and they work at one wavelength range or they have only one instrument, and WMAT was an example of that. And it was designed to answer the question, if you look at the radiation left over from the Big Bang, which is microwave radiation, um, can you learn about the initial conditions of the universe? Can you learn about the universe when it was you know, incredibly young? Well, I mean, literally a fraction of a second, which is an extraordinary question to ask. And can you cement the evidence for the Big Bang so that nobody would doubt it, so that it's a theory that's really robust and, and completely believed. Um, so that was WMAT's goal, and it didn't come into a vacuum. It was it was a successor to the COBE satellite of NASA launched in 1979, um, which was the first mission that actually detected variations in these microwaves at a level of one part in 100,000. WMAP was designed to follow that up with some exquisite precision. And, and WMAP did a sort of basically a 10-year mission. Doing It was very boring. I mean, it just basically scanned the entire sky over and over again at a few different microwave wavelengths and just made the most accurate map of intensity of microwaves it could make, that accurate to, you know, a thousandth of a percent, and that's all it did. And that, that was all it needed to do. That was what its science was built around. It definitely cemented the idea of the Big Bang. It showed that the microwaves that we see all around us that pervade space um, are indeed the leftover radiation from the early hot, dense phase of the universe. Those, those waves were liberated to travel freely through space about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And it just painted a detailed picture of that radiation, you know, making it essentially beyond doubt that it originated from a Big Bang situation. And then at the edge of its research, the thing that it got to that it couldn't quite nail down, but it was very exciting, and, and now there's a European mission that's, that's trying to uh, you know go a little deeper and see a little more detail. It looked at whether the universe was subject to an episode called inflation. So in the cosmology, the only embellishment of the standard Big Bang model in 50 years really has been the idea of inflation, which is that the universe, since we see space-time to be flat, and general relativity couldn't let space-time be curved or all of whatever shape it wants to be, um, we sort of are puzzled by why space-time is flat. And the inflation idea explains that by hypothesizing that the universe went through a phenomenally rapid phase of very early expansion 
from when it was smaller than a subatomic particle to when it was the size of you know a basketball or something like that, and then continue the more sedate expansion. So that's an extraordinary idea, and the, this rapid expansion is supposedly driven by decoupling of the fundamental forces of nature when the universe is tiny and exceptionally hot. Um, so WML was trying to test this extraordinary idea. It was basically trying to test physics in the first tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang. And it it got towards an answer. It sort of said tentatively, yeah, which pretty much looks like inflation happened, but couldn't completely nail it beyond doubt. Based on data collected by WMAT and ESA's Planck mission analysis of the cosmic microwave background, physicist John Kramer from the University of Washington created something he calls the sound of the Big Bang, or what Chris Impey calls space music. I asked Dr. Impey to tell us about this space music. So space music is a nice idea of making what WMAP and these microwave satellites do real, making it tangible to the average person. This is very esoteric science when you're talking about, you know, microwaves left over from the Big Bang in the early universe. But it turns out, if you, if you think about the early universe as a physicist, what's actually going on is that uh, there's a plasma, there's a very high temperature gas, and there's radiation moving around at the speed of light in that gas. And when you look at how that radiation behaves, it actually has it has oscillations, it has waves, and so the plasma acts acoustically in a, in a, in an analogy to what we would consider of a sound wave, except it's a very bizarre physical situation because it's an extremely high temperature gas, not like the gas in a room, um, and it's also the whole universe, not just the gas in a room. So we can, you can make a physical analogy to the early universe with sound waves traveling through this very high temperature plasma. And if you can make that analogy with sound waves, then it's a natural thing to say, well, could you make them audible? And it turns out you could, but of course the universe itself is a huge thing, so you actually have to scale them down. So, so, you, so when you hear various what's called sonifications of the Big Bang, which is turning the, these oscillations of the early universe in the plasma into sound waves, you have to scale it in two ways. You have to, of course, speed it up so you can hear it because these waves played out over hundreds of thousands of years and you want to be able to listen to it. So you're going to speed it up from hundreds of thousands of years to like five or ten seconds. And then because the universe is a big thing, like an organ pipe is big, will make a very low note, and a small thing will make a high note, you have to take it up a bunch of octaves. And so basically you raise the true sound that might have been heard in the early universe by like 50 or so octaves, and then you can make a sound out of it, and you can play that sound, and those, some of those versions of the sounds are on the web. And, you know, it's, not, it's, it's appealing to scientists because it's real, it's physics, it's astrophysics, it's not just someone, you know, inventing a musical composition and being purely creative. It actually is a scientifically rendered sound of the universe. But what does the space music sound like? Well, it's a, it's a not a very, I would say it's not very musical. You know, it's not Mo, it's not Mozart, that's for sure. Um, it's and it's not sort of a new age or ethereal or spacey the way you might imagine it should be. So it's something different. It's kind of like this rushing, 
sound. It's a little, you know, it's it's a little noisy. It's not very harmonic, but it has a tone, and tone changes over time. And then there's this sort of echoing, almost like a ringing that you hear at the end of it as the universe gets larger and these waves dissipate. So it's kind of a rush of sound followed by a ringing and then a dying away. It's an interesting sound. And here's the sound itself, generated by John G. Kramer in 2013. that cosmic sound, it's time to end today's show. Thank you so much to Chris Impey for being on our show and discussing his new book, Dreams of Other Worlds, The Amazing Story of Unmanned Space Exploration, which he wrote with Holly Henry. It's a wonderful book and I highly recommend it. Thank you for listening If you and if you'd like to hear more, check us out on grox.net. From everyone at the show, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Forrest Golden, I'm Joanna Rowell. Have a great week and keep rocking.